You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Claiming you have money that you do not have does not amount to the art of the deal. It's the art of the steal. And there cannot be different rules for different people in this country or in this state. And former presidents are no different. New York's Attorney General Letitia James is suing former President Donald Trump, his three eldest children, and his company for what she called staggering fraud over a decade, alleging they lied about the value of his prized real estate assets from golf courses and hotels to his homes at Trump Tower and Mar-a-Lago. The lawsuit strikes at the essence of what made Trump famous and the core of his brand. And the ultimate aim is to stop the Trumps from doing business in New York ever again. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz, a partner at McCarter and English. This is a 222-page complaint. You could say it's almost three years in the making, listing 200-plus times Trump allegedly lied about valuations of his assets over 10 years. This is a sweeping and detailed complaint, not unexpected, by the way, something that everybody thought was going to come eventually out of the New York Attorney General's office. But the details and the number of interviews and the number of documents that were reviewed in putting this complaint together is something that certainly gets your attention. It alleges a widespread effort to manipulate property valuations by former President Trump and three of his children and the Trump Organization and some of the Trump executives and is asking for $250 million in penalties and an end to their operations in the state of New York. It specifically accuses former President Trump his son, Donald Trump Jr., his daughter, Ivanka Trump, his other son, Eric Trump, and other Trump company executives of engaging in a years-long scheme to enrich themselves by inflating the values of a wide variety of properties, both within the United States and internationally. And just explain how inflating the values helped Trump. Sure. Well, 
This probe was launched back in 2019, and it came as a result of testimony that Michael Cohn, who was former President Trump's lawyer previously, he testified before Congress and said that the Trump Organization had regularly engaged in a pattern of fraudulent financial statements. And by that, he meant that the Trump Organization would inflate the valuation of assets in certain circumstances, for example, when seeking loans and for insurance coverage purposes, but at the same time, deflate the value of those very same assets in order to reduce their tax liability. During the press conference, the AG gave some examples. For example, the Trump triplex apartment in Trump Tower. He represented that it was more than 30,000 square feet. In reality, it was less than 11,000 square feet, which increased the value by about $200 million. And James said that, you know, this wasn't an honest mistake. It was deliberate fraud because he knew about the layout of the apartment and the building. He'd personally overseen the construction. Well, what the attorney general was trying to do here was to get out in front of an argument that these valuations are, by definition, somewhat subjective. In other words, in order to try to put a valuation on commercial property in Manhattan, for example, there is somewhat of a subjective element to coming up with a number of what that property is worth based upon other commercial properties. So what the AG here was attempting to do was to give examples that did not involve any of that subjectivity. So as an example, the complaint alleges that the triplex apartment at Trump Tower was 30,000 square feet in certain documents and then was listed as only 11,000 square feet in others. That is something that is clearly not subjective, but is simply an objective fact. It's either 30,000 or 11,000 square feet. Other examples that were specifically included in the complaint include adding more floors and square footage to buildings that actually exist, claiming more residential lots than were actually zoned for on certain golf courses and listing values beyond what the appraisers had valued those properties at. Again, all of these are attempts by the Attorney General's office to show that these were not mistakes. These were not differences between two asset valuators in terms of what the subjective valuation of a property is worth, but these were simply facts that were misstated and, according to the Attorney General's office, were misstated intentionally by Donald Trump and by others in the Trump Organization when they knew, in fact, that these facts were wrong. She said that many of these alleged evaluations were, quote, greatly exaggerated, grossly inflated, objectively false. For example, he overestimated the value of Mar-a-Lago by almost 10 times. Yeah, and I think that's what the Attorney General's office has to do here because of the subjective nature in valuing these properties. These have to be examples that are so extreme that they can point out that nobody could have really believed that these valuations were true. And so the the AG has found certain examples where she believes that these valuations are so exaggerated that it cannot be an innocent mistake. The other thing we're seeing throughout this complaint is the attempt by the Attorney General's office to show that this is a pattern in practice. In other words, it's not an isolated example. It's not a situation in which the Trump Organization can say that they may have made a mistake or they may have relied on an evaluation that was improper, but they're showing that this was a pattern in practice that involved multiple properties, both domestic and internationally, and something that went on for many years. 
ultimately, in order to prove their case, they have to show that this was done intentionally. It was not an innocent mistake. On his social media site, Truth Social, Trump called the lawsuit another witch hunt. His lawyer, Alina Haba, said... It's abundantly clear that the Attorney General's office has exceeded its statutory authority by prying into transactions where absolutely no wrongdoing has taken place. How do they rebut, though, things like, you know, exaggerations of square footage? That's a fact. How do you rebut that? Well, I think that's part of the defense that we're certainly going to see in this case. The fact is that Letitia James is a Democrat who was elected. Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan District Attorney, was also a Democrat. And so it's certainly something that's going to come out of the Trump playbook to argue that these people were politically motivated. And in fact, Letitia James, as the New York Attorney General, when she ran for office, specifically talked about investigating Donald Trump and the Trump Organization. So this is part of an attempt in order to nullify the jury to go out there and to suggest that this entire investigation and now this civil investigation and the civil charges that have been brought today were all part of a witch hunt, and there's really no substance here. But ultimately, when it gets down to a trial, they will have to rebut these specific examples where the AG has cited misstatements in these asset valuations. And that's exactly why we're seeing a situation here where the attorney general's office is giving multiple examples of where they believe these are objective and indefensible valuations where, on the the one hand, it's being valued at a certain level and the facts about the property being presented in a certain way when it benefits Trump organization and they're being presented factually in a different way in order to benefit the Trump organization in a different context. Letitia James said she rejected a settlement offer from Trump but her door is open. What does it tell you that she rejected a settlement offer? Well, I don't think it says that much, really. I mean, it's interesting that the Trump Organization is trying to settle these charges, but not surprising just how far apart they may be in terms of settlement. That's something we really don't know. As this case progresses now, now that the charges have actually been filed, the case will move forward. There may be further discussions about trying to resolve this case. But remember, this is a civil case only. It's not a criminal case. So the only thing this case is ultimately about is money. So ultimately, it's a case that can be settled with money. One thing that makes this different, however, is that the AG is not only seeking money in this case, but also seeking to ban Trump and his family from engaging in business in New York State. So among the penalties that are being sought by the attorney general are to remove the Trumps from business engaged in New York, to appoint a monitor to monitor the Trump business and control its interests, and to remove the trustees of the Trump organization or replace them with independent trustees in order to monitor the commercial and real estate acquisitions for five years, including all loans with New York banks, and basically run the business through independent individuals, through a monitor, and through independent trustees, rather than President Trump and his family. That is something that is going to be difficult, I think, for the Trump Organization and the Attorney General to agree on, because now that that's been laid out there, it's going to be difficult for the AG to walk that back, and that is not something that I can ever see the Trump Organization agreeing to, because that would essentially turn the organization over to independent, unrelated individuals 
something that President Trump has never agreed to. He's always run his business with close family members and executives who had been loyal to him for many years. So the idea that individuals who were independent and approved by the attorney general's office would run the Trump organization and would be trustees of the Trump organization is something that is unlikely that President Trump will ever agree to. So, as you mentioned, this is a civil complaint, but James said that she thinks the conduct alleged here also violates federal criminal law, including issuing false statements to financial institutions and bank fraud, and she's making criminal referrals to the U.S. attorney in Manhattan and the IRS. So they'll have the benefit of all the evidence she's gathered in a lot of hard-fought legal fights. Does that put pressure on them to do something? Well, I think it does ratchet up the pressure a bit on the U.S. Attorney's Office. There'll be a huge amount of information turned over to them. The AG's office examined more than a million pages of documents and interviewed many, many Trump executives and outside professionals who work with the Trump Organization, and all of that will be passed on to the U.S. Attorney's Office on the IRS. And Letitia James, the New York Attorney General, specifically said that this investigation uncovered potential criminal violations, including falsifying business records, issuing false financial statements, insurance fraud, conspiracy, and bank fraud. So this will, I think, put additional pressure on the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Southern District, but ultimately they will review this information, they will review this evidence, and they'll come to their own conclusion as to whether or not a federal criminal law has been broken. Because remember, the standard for a civil case is simply a preponderance of the evidence. That's the standard that Letitia James has to prove in, in court in order to win her civil case. For federal prosecutors to win a criminal case, that has to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So it's a higher standard. And the U.S. Attorney's Office that will then have to evaluate that evidence and decide whether or not they can meet that higher standard in a criminal case. How damaging is this to former President Trump? I mean, he's facing criminal investigations by the Justice Department, by the Fulton County District Attorney's Office in Georgia, possibly by the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. How damaging is this to him? Criminal cases are always more threatening because obviously there's a risk of actually going to jail in a criminal case, and a civil case can only result in fines and penalties. But on the other hand, this is a broad, sweeping indictment, as it were, of the Trump Organization and their pattern and practice of doing business. The criminal investigations are much more focused. They're focused on allegedly taking confidential information to Mar-a-Lago. They're focused on aspects of tampering with the 2020 election. But this is a broad allegation that really goes to the heart of the Trump organization and the brand that the Trumps have built over many, many years as a successful, smart business, somebody who knew how to make money even in a down economy. And this complaint seeks to sort of pull back the curtain on that and suggest that all of that success was actually built on a series of fraudulent misrepresentations that led to loans being made, that led to insurance policies being given, that led to properties being sold, all under a facade of false valuations of these properties. Remains to be seen whether the Attorney General's office will be able to prove these allegations, but it is certainly a frontal assault on the Trump organization and the brand that President Trump has spent decades building up. Thanks, Bob. That's Robert Mintz, a partner at Carter in English. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. 
athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The governors of the states of Texas and Florida seem to be competing not only on sending migrants to sanctuary cities, but also on regulating social media platforms. Texas is taking a stand against big tech political censorship. We're not going to allow it. The truth will set you free. And so that's what we're doing here in the state of Florida. The Texas law barring social media platforms with more than 50 million users from discriminating on the basis of viewpoint was cleared as constitutional by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals last Friday. But Florida's similar law was struck down as unconstitutional by the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals in May. The Supreme Court often intervenes when there is this kind of a circuit split, and Florida's attorney general asked the court to do just that on Wednesday. My guest is First Amendment law expert Caroline Malla Corbin, a professor at the University of Miami Law School. Caroline, tell us a little about the Texas social media law. So Texas passed a law that said that large social media platforms cannot discriminate based on viewpoint in terms of taking down posts. And ostensibly, this was in response to a perceived problem of large liberal companies targeting conservative viewpoints, when in reality, what it may well do is hamper platforms' ability to take down hate speech and disinformation and speech like that. 
So the companies are claiming this violates their free speech rights. But there may also be a question about preemption, for example, because Section 230 in the Communications Decency Act provides protection for companies in terms of taking down material that they believe might be problematic. Can you give us an analysis of this law using basic First Amendment principles? Free speech clause protects both your right to speak and your right not to speak. So the government can no more censor you from saying what you like than it can force you to say things you don't like, like anti-Nazi drivel or COVID disinformation. Right? The government cannot compel you to speech any more than it can censor your speech. The second important thing is whether we like it or not, the Supreme Court has held that for-profit corporations have free speech rights to the same extent as you or me. With exception for its advertisement and other commercial speech, generally, corporations have free speech rights. So corporations also can't be censored by the government or compelled to speak against their will. The final thing I want to point out is that in free speech law, anytime the government attempts to regulate the content of your speech, it is presumptively unconstitutional on the idea that the government has no business telling you what you can or cannot say or what you don't want to say. So under sort of foundational principles of free speech law, This looks like a content-based regulation because it's telling speakers the content of what they have to say. And again, they have a right not to speak as much as a right to speak, and companies have these protections as well. So the normal free speech analysis would be, this is a content-based regulation. It's telling companies what they have to say. The government's not allowed to do that. It has to have a really compelling government interest and no other way to accomplish that interest in order to survive, and the government can't make that showing. That's one way to do the analysis. I take it the Fifth Circuit did it another way. Yes, this is how the Fifth Circuit did the analysis. And I want to highlight two claims it's made, one of which is preposterous and one of which is wrong. So let me start with the really outlandish claim that it made, which is that this does not involve speech in any way. And so it makes this argument in a couple of ways. First, it tries to say that what's going on here is that a private company is censoring speech and censorship is conduct, not speech. And the free speech clause protects speech, not conduct. This is silly, apart from the fact that intuitively it seems wrong to say that what a social media does or does not say on a state doesn't involve speech. Even assuming you're going to go along with the Fifth Circuit's attempt to characterize the decision not to publish something as conduct, conduct that has an expressive component is also protected by the free speech clause. And clearly, its decision not to publish something because it doesn't like its content means that its censorship has an expressive component. And then it says, even assuming this is about editorial discretion in what you say or not say, editorial discretion is not protected by the free speech clause. In other words, if I write the chapters in a book, that would be protected by the free speech clause. 
But if I'm putting together a compilation of essays and choosing what other people I want to have in my book, that would not be. That's also just patently false. So the court's attempt to say a company's decision not to publish certain things on its platform doesn't involve its speech is incorrect. Very incorrect. The court said the platforms are not newspapers. Their censorship is not speech. But aren't they just like newspapers for many, many people? So that question actually touches on two things. Even the decision of what you want to publish or not publish is a decision about what to say or not say and is protected by the free speech cause. But that brings me to my second point, which is the court also argues that Social media platforms are actually common carriers, and there are special rules involved with common carriers, one of which is you can bar them from discriminating against people. So a common carrier, it's sort of infrastructure that serves as a conduit for people's speech. So a telephone company is a common carrier, or a postal service is a common carrier, Broadband providers may be common carriers, right? These are people who engage in sort of indiscriminate, neutral transmission of any and all user speech. And so the question is, the question you raised, are social media platforms more like newspapers, such that they are entitled to full free speech protection? Or are they more like telephone companies? such that they're common carriers, and therefore the government can say you can't discriminate against viewpoints. And whereas I think there would be no disagreement among First Amendment scholars that censorship involves speech, there might be disagreement among free speech scholars about whether social media platforms are best characterized as more like newspapers or more like common carriers. And both the district court in Texas and the 11th Circuit addressing a similar question held that they're really more like newspapers that they do exercise editorial control over the information, not just in terms of censoring certain speech, but also in terms of how they present the speech, how they arrange the speech. So if you have a Twitter feed or a Facebook feed, you know that they tend to try and show you things. So with the Fifth Circuit saying one thing and the Eleventh Circuit saying another, is it likely the Supreme Court will take the case? The laws were not exactly the same, but they presented some similar issues and they've reached different conclusions about those issues. And that's the type of case that the Supreme Court often decides to hear. Explain how this case went before the Supreme Court before and what that might indicate. So once the district court had issued its ruling in Texas and said this law violates the free speech clause, so I'm going to stay it. I'm going to say it does not go into effect yet. The Fifth Circuit removed the stay before it made any kind of decision and said, yes, this law should go into effect. And when that was appealed to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court was like, no, 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 no. Actually, we think that the district court stay should stay in effect. So how do you read the Supreme Court's willingness to say maybe we should hold off on having this law go into effect? I'm not entirely sure. It may mean that there are five votes for finding it unconstitutional. 
I will note, however, that there was a dissent of three justices who indicated that they thought the law might actually be constitutional. How do you think this law might affect social media platforms? So basically, anyone who thinks that their post was removed because of viewpoint discrimination would have a right to sue. And there were also disclosure requirements. So again, the fear of being sued based on decisions about what it takes down may very well affect how these companies decide what gets posted or what doesn't get posted. Given how much criticism they've come under for not removing enough content, now they're coming under criticism for removing too much content. It'll be really interesting to see whether the Supreme Court wants to wade into this this term when it has so many controversial cases on its docket already. Thanks so much, Caroline. That's Caroline Malik Corbin, a professor at the University of Miami Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.